Good morning once again. Will you turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 14. Back in Matthew again this week after last week, Charlie took us through a kind of an invitation to look beyond our circumstances, to to move our eyes beyond whatever is currently pressing in and see what God is doing in and through that circumstance. Uh, Knowing that God is in control, knowing that God is perfectly wise, knowing that God does all things well, knowing that God is perfectly faithful to His promises, uh, it shapes the way that we approach our lives. It means that those things that naturally we call blessings, uh, the promotion, the new house, the stable relationship, uh, bring us to a place of joy and praise, but it also means that those things that we're not so quick to call blessings, the hardships, the trials, and even the pains, really ought to bring us to that very same place. Things that are frustrating or unplanned ought to bring us to worship and joy and even gratitude just the same. And it's not that we love pain, it's not that we love suffering, it's certainly not that we seek those things out. But it's the fact that either those things about God that we say we believe are true, or they're not. And if they are, then God has promised to do what is in the eternal best interest of His people. And if they are, then God will do whatever is necessary to bring about the best good, which is to make us more like the Son. And if that's true, then it means every scenario that He brings into our lives, any situation that He allows us to walk through is done to accomplish those good purposes. And that means that whatever is happening in our lives at that moment is not only okay, it is the very best of all possible realities. The joy, the happiness, the gifts, the blessings, the best thing in that moment to make us more like Christ. But it also means that the strained relationships, the empty bank account, the failing health, are equally the very best thing in that moment that will make us more like Christ. Everything from the mustard on the shirt to the diagnosis from the doctor that you didn't want to hear, all of it makes us more like Christ. It's very easy for me to see one half of that as reasons to be joyful and the other half of that as reasons to bring me into frustration or even despair. That's why it's so necessary for us to think rightly about things, things, to fill our minds with the truth of who God is in times of relative stability so that we have a well of information and knowledge to draw off of. It's why it's so important that we fill our lives with believers, with people who will come alongside of us and minister to us and point us toward truth in these times. It's very, it's why it's so important for us to set up those signposts, those road markers, uh, those memorial stones in our lives that point us back to the faithfulness of God so that we always remember and I think it's such a good thing to be reminded that it is a good and healthy thing to ask where is God in this. Uh, there is no sense in pretending that either as individuals or families as a church or as a church that it's a healthy thing to never question where God is. When we make that God what are you doing question taboo, then really all we're doing is promoting the surface level faith uh, where nothing ever really goes wrong and as soon as something significant does go wrong, we have no depth of understanding to deal with it from. How much better to be a family, to be an individual, to be a church uh, that like David cries out, "How long, O Lord?" Uh, will you forget me forever? But then to be so saturated in the truth and to have those things built into our lives so that almost as we ask, the answer comes, yet I will praise you. I will sing to the Lord for He has dealt bountifully with me. That's Psalm 13, uh, by the way. And it's a wonderful example of what it looks like to be in dire circumstances with a real and right response. 
because God is doing everything necessary to bring about the good, the ultimate good for his people. And as we move back into Matthew chapter 14 today, we're going to come into a scenario and into a situation where I'm quite sure that the disciples asked, Lord, what are you doing in this particular scenario? As we come to Matthew 14, I want you to find your way to verse 13 with me, and I'll read a little bit of the passage that we're going to cover today, one of the most familiar passages in the New Testament. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw the great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. And when his evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them to me. He ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word, we recognize our need for help. Uh, these people had a physical need that their hunger might be met. We recognize that we have a need to hear from you through your word. So Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. We ask that you would remove those distractions that so easily crop up, the sin that so easily blinds and entangles and ensnares us. Uh, God, we ask that you would use your word to transform the way that we live, the way that we act, the way that we think. And you're good and faithful to do this. And so we come to you and we rejoice in the fact that you have spoken to us, that you have cared for us by giving us your truth. We praise you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if any of you have ever worked with children in any capacity, you know uh, how often you have to repeat yourself. And let's be honest, if any of you uh, have gone through this last week, you recognize that you have probably needed to be reminded of something. Uh, it's why we use vocabulary clash flashcards for kids in school. It's why job training involves doing the same thing over and over because repetition is really one of the keys to learning. It's why my wife will tell me what I ought to get at the store. She will text me what I ought to get at the store. And then I will call her as I'm checking out to say, what did I forget to get at the store? Because I know that I need repetition in order to actually drive home the point of what I'm supposed to be doing. And really, that's why God's Word, when it wants to highlight things, it doesn't change the font. It doesn't use underlining. It will repeat certain things. And it's so very effective. Uh, if I were to stand up here and say, uh, what is the theme of Psalm 150? Most of you would have no idea. You said, I didn't do my devotions there. And you know what? Even if you opened up the Bible or had it on the slide in front of me, I'm probably not sure that I could tell you what the theme of a whole psalm is. Well, what if I told you that within the span of only six verses, the word praise is used 13 times? What would you say the theme of the psalm is? Feel free to answer. Praise. praise. Very good. Look at that. Repetition drives home key thematic elements. And it is fascinating that as we come to this part of Matthew chapter 14, this is the only specific miracle that is mentioned in all four of the gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all include this very specific miracle. Why? Matthew has been building various themes into his gospel. King, kingdom, prophetic fulfillment. 
All of it driving toward the idea that this is the Christ, the promised, the anointed one that the prophets spoke of. What we're going to see built into this narrative is that this further solidifies not only the identity of Jesus, but just how badly the crowds missed it. What we're going to see today is Jesus as the good shepherd and Jesus as the bread of life, two things that we've heard before that aren't specifically mentioned in the text, but things that are definitely highlighted as aspects of this text. So first of all, let's open it up and I want to see how this points to Jesus as the good shepherd. Look with me at Matthew chapter 14, and beginning in verse 13, we're going to set the stage here. We've been away from Matthew for a week, and there's a, a thing that happens here just in the narrative itself that might be a little tricky. So we've got to set the stage well. Look at verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Now, if we were to just read through Matthew chapter 14, it's very easy to connect verse 13 to what happened in verse 11. The disciples of John come and tell Jesus that John the Baptist has been beheaded. And then if we read on immediately, it's Jesus hears about the beheading of John the Baptist and now withdraws to be by himself in a desolate place. But remember that that scene where John loses his head, the Mother's Day sermon uh, that we probably won't have on Mother's Day next year. That's a flashback. Matthew is not giving us a blow-by-blow, day-by-day, hour-by-hour recounting of the life and ministry of Jesus. He's moving thematically, and he's moving in broad lengths of time. And if we were to go back to 14, verse 1, we'd hear, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about Jesus. This is at that time of his ministry in Galilee. This is at that time when he is moving from town to town, village to village, preaching and healing, casting out demons. It is at that time. And as Herod hears about that, he comes to a very specific conclusion that this is John the Baptist raised from the dead. And then we have that flashback to this is why he would think that. This is what he did to John. And now as we move back into 13, now when Jesus heard this, we're thrust back into that time of verse 14. Or I'm sorry, of 14 verse 1. This is at the time of that Galilean ministry. This is at the time where Herod now assumes some things about Jesus. This is at the time where all of these things are coming together. In fact, if we were to look at Mark and Luke's gospel, as they account for this, they say that this is right in line with when the apostles, the disciples, were coming back from that first sending out that Jesus did in chapter 10. Remember, he said, go and heal the sick and cast out demons and preach the kingdom. This is when they come back from that. This is all tied very, very closely together. Together. And so Jesus understands that Herod has some assumptions. He's not looking for conflict with Herod. Now is not the time. Jesus understands that the disciples are now coming back from their first forays into ministry and that ministry will continue and will be pressing and he sees the need for rest. But that rest isn't going to come because he withdraws from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But look at the second half of verse 13. But when the crowds heard it, They followed him on foot from the towns. They see where the boat is headed, and they make a very educated guess at where he's going. The Sea of Galilee is big, but it is not that big. And those that are able actually run around the outside and meet him on the other side before he can even get there. And again, we get the sense that this is not just a few diehard people following him around. With every teaching, with every healing, his fame grows. With every sermon and with every conflict, with the religious leaders, the crowd grows and swells. And now people from every crowd, from every town and every city in the region are flocking to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to see what Jesus will do next. And when we have that in mind, the next part of this actually becomes even more striking. 
Because Jesus is going to see the need of this great crowd even at the expense of his own needs. We've set the stage, and now Jesus sees the need. Look at verse 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now let me ask you a very pointed question. What are you like when life is busy and you need rest? And then what are you like when that rest doesn't come? I don't know what you're like. I know what I'm like. It's been a busy week. All the various things that life and ministry bring into existence. And Sunday comes and I've done my best to prep and preach well. And Sunday afternoon comes and the tank's just about empty. And it's a quiet afternoon. We don't have anything planned for a few hours. And so that's the time I'm going to lay down. I'm going to get just a bit of rest. And it is inevitably at that time when someone's arm falls off or when the dog decides to run through the screen door or when part of the house just randomly falls down, something will happen. And that is such a perfect opportunity, such a perfect moment to lie there and ask, God, what are you trying to teach me in this moment? Thank you for this opportunity to grow. And that is my, op- that is my response sometimes. Far more often, it's, God, what are you doing Why now? What a beautiful thing to see that Jesus, full of ministry, uh, full of uh, the pressing needs of the crowd, comes there and instead of finding uh, the rest that was anticipated, finding more needs, more people, more issues, and he doesn't respond in anger, he doesn't respond in frustration, he doesn't respond in disappointment. He looks at the crowd and he feels compassion. And Mark says something, he says that, He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And we've actually heard that in Matthew's Gospel before. Jesus feels great compassion on these people and he views them as sheep without a shepherd. And if we had time, we would go back into the Old Testament and we would pull out the deep understanding of what that was supposed to mean. These people were supposed to have shepherds over them. The kings of Israel were given to shepherd the people toward an obedience of God. The Levites and the priests were there to be faithful shepherds, to minister God's word to his people and to move them along toward obedience and ultimately the blessing that came with that. And yet what happened is they failed over and over and over. One of the consistent themes in the prophetic writings is this condemnation of the failed shepherds of Israel. The ones that were supposed to care for them were either totally ignorant to the needs of the flock or they were so self-centered that they would fleece the flock to feed their own needs. And what about these people? Well, the priesthood that was supposed to care for them was run by wicked men. The Sadducees don't even believe in the resurrection. They can't be bothered with what God's Word says or what it means. They're too tied to their power. The Pharisees have taken the law and they've made it a burden. As far as a king, they're ruled by tyrants out of Rome and petty kings who are cruel in their daily lives. These people are very much like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus is moved toward compassion. Now add to that the fact that Jesus knows this crowd. He's not under any illusion that a crowd means just a throng of willing disciples. He knows that they're fickle. He knows why they're there. John 6 addresses that very, very specifically. He knows that they want the food and that they have really no need or desire for repentance. No interest in the one who uh, says that he is the Messiah, but in order to come into his kingdom, you must be like a child. That's not the Messiah they're looking for. 
and still he feels compassion toward them. Just like it's easy for me to be nice when I'm rested, it's very easy for me to be compassionate to people that like me. It's very easy for me to be compassionate to people that are easy to get along with. It's much more difficult for me to be gracious and compassionate with people who think ill of me, who have acted wrongly towards me. But Jesus isn't like those other shepherds. Jesus is the good shepherd. Thankfully, Jesus is a better shepherd than I am. He sees the needs of the people. And as the good shepherd sees the need, he doesn't just feel for them. He moves then to meet that need. It's one thing to recognize what somebody needs. It's quite another thing to have the power and the desire and the ability to go then and meet that need. And what was it that they needed? If we look at the rest of verse 14, it gives us some indication. It says he has compassion on them and he healed their sick. He does what he's done multiple times before. He proves that he has the ability and the power uh, to deal with whatever physical symptoms of sickness are there. But again, we have to be reminded that the healings are never just for healing's sake. It is nice when people feel better. That is a good thing when people don't feel sick anymore. But Jesus did not come just to make people feel better. Remember, why do these people need physical healing in the first place? Why do they need shepherds in the first place? Because sin kills, and it's because sin separates. Sin impacts even our physical body. It it penetrates every aspect of creation, and even our physical bodies. That's why we wear down, break down, get old, wear out. That's why there's weakness and disease of all kinds. Sin is separated from God. Sin is why we wander aimlessly, pursuing our own directions instead of moving back toward the God who made us. The Good Shepherd has the power to undo these things. The good shepherd has the ability to provide for these needs because he has the power to overcome even the effects of the fall. That's why the prophets say that the Messiah will be the one to heal them of their diseases. That's why the prophets speak of the Messiah as ruling over a time of plenty and fulfillment. Because when the king comes, in his kingdom, there's fullness, there's life, there's restoration. There is wholeness. And every time he does this, he proves once again what the Messiah will do. And it's also why it was never just a healing ministry. He heals and he teaches. He meets the physical need and he addresses the spiritual need. And if we were to look at Luke's account of this, we'll see that that's exactly what he does. Luke 9.11 says that he welcomed them and he spoke to them of the kingdom of God and he cured those who had need of healing. So we see this good shepherd that's not preoccupied with his own need, but that will move to meet the needs of his people, those physical needs, but also that point to their very real spiritual need. And he is not only moved with compassion, but he is powerful enough to meet both the physical and the spiritual needs of these people. So Jesus does what their failed shepherds absolutely could not do. He genuinely cares for these people. He sees the need, and he sees it more accurately even than they do, and he addresses the physical need. And he is able to address the physical need because he is powerful enough to address the spiritual need. He is able to make them whole in a way that they don't even understand that they need. And now as we come to the next part of this narrative, the attention shifts from the teaching and healing of Jesus onto a very present need in the lives of all of those that were gathered there today. We're going to see uh, now not only that Jesus is the good shepherd, but now we're going to move and we're going to see the theme change of Jesus as the bread of life. That there is a deeper than a physical need here that is only highlighted by a physical need. And uh, 
If you've been in church for any length of time, you've heard this story. If not in a sermon, then certainly in Sunday school. So once again, I want to set the stage, just like we did at the very beginning. And I want to set the stage to make sure that we're rightly understanding kind of where we are and what this looks like. We get the we get our view from the coloring pages that can only show so much and the flannel graphs uh, that only show so much or the veggie tales or whatever it happens to be. Uh, our minds naturally generate these pictures of what this looked like. If you look down to verse 21, kind of go to the end here to help set the scope, uh, I want us to understand how large this was. Those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So when we say the feeding of the 5,000, that speaks to a small part of the crowd. Given the fact that women were very prominent in how they followed Christ around, given the fact that, that these were families with likely multiple children more often than not, this crowd could very, very easily have been upwards of 20,000 people. 20,000 people is the capacity of the Staples Center in downtown Los Angeles where the Lakers play. Not anymore, but it used to be. 20,000 people gathered around Christ. In addition to that, there are some things that happen behind the scenes that help kind of prod us along as we go on this. First of all, remember, Mark and Luke both tell us that this is very soon after the disciples come back from that first movement into ministry. Matthew 10, Jesus says, you're going to go out. And that's when he gives them all those warnings about the opposition that's to come. He tells them that this is the power and the authority that they have through him. He tells them they'll be rejected. And in Mark and Luke, it says they come back and they give their report to Jesus. And then they move away toward this time. So keep that in your mind. And second, in John chapter 6, John 6 verse 4 tells us that the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. That little detail has no bearing on the physical aspect of this miracle. So why in the world would John include it? Because it sets us in a very specific frame of mind, or at least it would if we were thinking like a first century Jew. What does the Passover call to mind? The Passover reminds those people of a time when they were held in bondage and captivity. The Passover reminds them of a time when God, with His powerful hand, brought plagues into the Pharaoh and the Egypt's lives as He called to let them go. The Passover calls to mind that night when they were told to gather in houses and the angel of death was going to pass over all of them, bringing death to every household in the land. But... If they were to kill a lamb and put the blood on the lentils and the doorposts, they would be spared. They would be passed over. In other words, the Passover brings them back to the time when something died so that they did not. When a lamb stood in their place. The nation is getting ready to celebrate that. Now what do we know? Because we know the end. We know that Jesus is moving toward the cross. And we know that the cross comes at the time of the Passover. So to set this firmly in our mind, you need to understand that we are now one year from the cross of Christ. That, that's the background of this. That is, that is the setting that this is put into. And with that in the background, let's move on to verse 15, uh, where now the disciples are going to see a very specific need of the people. Look at verse 15. Now when it was evening, so the whole day has come and gone, they've come to the other side, Jesus has ministered, He's healed, He has taught for the whole day. And when the evening had come, the disciples came to Him, and they said, this is a desolate place, and the day is now over. 
send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. The day is over, and this is a desolate place. Now, this is Galilee. This is not the desert. Uh, This is not the wilderness where Christ was tempted. Uh, So it's not that this is just an arid, dry, ugly, barren place. This is a desolate place, and this is a remote place. They are not right outside the walls of Jerusalem where thousands of people might be attended to. They are in a part of the country with small towns and villages scattered throughout it. They are relatively close to Bethsaida, but they're not near a major metropolis. And very, very soon, thousands of people are all going to realize that they have the very same need at the very same time, and that is that they are hungry. And like no point in human history, you and I take the idea of hunger for granted. You say, you don't know that. It feels like you've been preaching forever. I'm ready for breakfast. When we want to eat, it's very easy to meet that need. We get hungry and we drive through someplace and we can eat it before we get to our next destination. If we have a little bit more time, we can go to the store and we buy something and we go home and we put it in the microwave that will cook it very quickly for us. If you have a few hours, you can prepare a home-cooked meal. We are a huge cultural distance away from understanding the significance of the preparation of a meal and how much of the daily routine that would have taken up. If you were going to eat, you had to prepare. And because you couldn't refrigerate or freeze, unless you dried and salted things, uh, you prepared what was needed for that day, and then you had to wake up tomorrow and do it again, and again, and again. And that means that someone had to be primarily devoted to the task of preparing for the physical needs of feeding a family on a day-by-day-by-day basis. And these people all knew that. It's telling that they were willing to stay there with Jesus an entire day, even at the expense of eating that day. Now Matthew has Jesus, uh, uh, has the disciples approach Jesus with this concern. But John's gospel gives us a, an interesting little bit of background here that Matthew's doesn't. In John 6, 5, as they're arriving at that place, Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? In other words, at the very beginning of the day, before the evening, as they're arriving, Jesus looks at Philip and he says, there's a lot of people here. How are they going to eat? It's Jesus that plants the seed of that question that they will now chew on for the rest of the day. All day long at the back of their minds, is this reality, there are people, how will they eat? Maybe Jesus will dismiss them early, and the day drags on. Maybe they'll just start to filter out, and the day drags on. And now the evening is coming, and the question is still there, where are they going to find something to eat? And the best that they can do is recognize that the need is real, that they do need to eat, that they are going to get hungry, and the best that they can do is say, send them away. Uh, They've got to go into the villages, let them buy some food for themselves. They recognize the need, but they can't do anything about the need. And although if we're thinking clearly, you're thinking if 20,000 people suddenly descend on a village of 1,500 or even 2,000 people, how is that supposed to work? Uh, The reality is the disciples are going to send them away, and from their perspective, they will all wind up hungry at the end of the day. But as John's Gospel said, Jesus asked that knowing what He was going to do. In fact, He did it to test them. 
And Jesus not only sees the need, Jesus is once again going to meet that need. Look at what he says in verse 16. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Now that is a shocking statement. I would have loved to see the disciples' eyes as Jesus says, you give them something to eat. All day, what are we going to do? How are they going to eat? All day, they've worked it over. They've done the math. They've looked at the crowd. And their best idea is they've got to go away from here. Now, Jesus looks them in the eye and says, they don't need to go anywhere. You feed them. Please be reminded that this is approaching 20,000 people. That is, if you took this tent and set up something like 200 just like it side by side. And now you're there face to face with Jesus and he says, you do something about this. This is why it's important to understand that this doesn't just come out of a vacuum. Uh, Where had they just come from? If we follow the timeline in Mark and Luke, they had just come back from doing ministry that to them was a physically impossible thing to do. Matthew said when he sent them out, he gave them authority over the demonic realm. He gave them the authority to heal every kind of disease and affliction. He's already, in a sense, given them the ability and the authority to do things that were impossible on their own. Now, that would have been an overwhelming statement. You give them something to eat, but they already ought to have had some kind of a framework to see that their definition of what was reasonable and expected under the Messiah's ministry was not necessarily always accurate. The best that they can do is say, according to the other gospel accounts, 200 denarii, 200 days wages wouldn't feed them. In other words, Jesus, if we were to take up all the money we had, it wouldn't even make a dent in this. Matthew's gospel tells us that uh, as they consider the food that they have, there's not enough there either. Uh, Look at verse 17. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. Not only do we not have enough money to touch the need, uh, but we've only got five loaves and two fish here. This is a very meager amount. We all know that this is the the little boy who had brought his lunch. This is not food to feed 500. This is not food to feed 50. This is not food to feed five. Well, we think of five loaves. That's a pretty big thing. Maybe that at least makes a dent in somebody's family. Uh, These aren't loaves like we have loaves of bread. These are small. These are rolls. And they're just a couple of little pickled fish. This is enough to sustain one boy. He said, and we have only five loaves and two fish. In other words, there's not enough to even make a bit of a difference in any of this. And Jesus says, bring it to me. And maybe the disciples are thinking, well, at least Jesus will eat. At least maybe finally he'll look after his own needs. But verse 19, he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Other Gospels tell us it was by fifties and by hundreds. So they're sat down in these groups covering the grassy hillside in the springtime there in Galilee and taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. He stops. He thanks the Father for what has been provided. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And the miracle here is so subtle. This isn't a sudden pile of loaves and fish that appear. It's not manna coming down from heaven. It's Jesus handing something to his disciples who then break it and hand it to the crowds, who then break it and hand it to the crowds. And as the need is there, 
the multiplication happens. Now don't miss that. Jesus broke the bread and gave it to his disciples. Remember what he had told them to do. You give them something to eat. And it's subtle, but now they are the agents that are going to be handing out this food to people. In other words, they are now able to do exactly what Jesus told them to do because He has provided for them to do it. He told them to go and teach. Go cast out demons. Go heal diseases. They had no ability on their own to do that. He told them to give 20,000 some odd people something to eat. They had no ability to do that. Later on, He will say, go into all the world and make disciples. Call men and women to this gospel out of every tribe and tongue and nation. Fishermen, tax collectors, nobody's from nowhere. They have no ability to do that. And yet Jesus meets the need. And it happens because the king has equipped his kingdom citizens to do exactly what he has called them to do. Look at verse 20. And they all ate and were satisfied. They didn't just have a bite. They didn't just take the edge off. They ate until they were fully satisfied. The hunger is not just dulled. The hunger is completely done away with. And once again, you and I could read over that so easily. We take being full, being satisfied, so very much for granted. Most of us will be fully satisfied probably more than we need to be even today. On multiple occasions today, we will eat to the point where we cannot eat anymore. For a huge portion of the world's population, for a gigantic chunk of human history that is absolutely unusual and rare, people live on the edge of need to prepare food for the day and not even to have a guarantee of bread tomorrow. That's the norm. And here, out of nothing, not only comes a dent in the need, it comes complete satisfaction. And not only are they completely satisfied, but look at the end of verse 20, and they took up 12 baskets of the broken pieces left over. And of course, that number is not accidental. For one thing, those disciples that had wrestled all day with the question of where are we supposed to get food, those disciples that wrestled with the question of we don't have enough money, Those disciples are now holding a powerful object lesson. This is Jesus, the one who satisfies when there seems to be no way to meet the need. But I want you to turn with me to John chapter 6. Because if we leave this at the point where it is a miracle that satisfies physical hunger, we miss something here. In John chapter 6, the same miracle is accounted for. And in John chapter 6, once Jesus feeds the crowd, it says that they desire to take Him, to seize Him, take Him by force and make Him their King. Free food for 20,000 people out of nothing sounds like a good start to a government. And the people are going to seize Him and they are going to make Him their King who can meet their physical needs. And if we're being careful, we understand that that was exactly what was tempted here. You can have the kingdom. You can have the authority. You can have rule without the cross. And Jesus moves away to a place that is desolate by Himself. There's another eventful night on the water that Matthew will take us through next week. But I want you to look at John 
chapter 6, verse 26 and 27. They're coming to meet him now on the other side of the sea. And Jesus talks to many of these same people, this same crowd, or at least a representative of that same crowd. And he answers them and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. I know why you're coming to Me. I gave you dinner last night. You want breakfast this morning. I know why you're here. But there is something more. There's something greater that you need. Well, the people don't really take kindly to that. Look down at verse 30. John 6, verse 30. So they said to him, "Uh, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Remember, he just fed thousands of them. What sign do you do that we might see and believe in you? Uh, What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Uh, Jesus, remember our history when God wanted to provide for his people. He gave them manna. And by the way, they had it every day when they were in the wilderness. Jesus, what are you going to do so that we believe in you? It's a little bit of a manipulative way of trying to get something out of this Messiah. Look at verse 32. Then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. First of all, get it straight, Moses didn't feed anybody. God did. But there's something more than that. He's giving you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. That sounds very good to them. And so they say, Sir, give us this bread always. Now look at verse 35. This is the crux of the whole thing. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's the point. This miracle narrative that finds its way into all four of our Gospels is not just about hungry people. This is not just the story of Jesus wanting to make sure that people didn't go to bed with empty bellies. Uh, As much as we might have heard it preached this way or heard it in Sunday school, this is not the story of a generous little boy who shared his lunch. And how only, if only, you will be generous. God, too, will multiply what you have. The point of this story is that there is a need greater than physical hunger. There is a need that only God can supply, and there is a need that is met only through the person of Jesus Christ. Is He able to meet the physical need? Absolutely He is, but He is only able to meet that physical need because He is able to meet the greater need. He gives them their daily bread because He is the living bread. As we wrap this up today, we have to make sure that we're rightly recognizing the need, that we see what the real need is. Because the crowds thought they knew. The crowds were focused on a physical need. They thought that if they felt full, surely they must be fulfilled. They thought that if they felt well, then surely their well-being was looked after. And look, it's all very well and good to look at the crowd and say, how do you people miss it? He was right in front of you. You ate bread and fish that had no business being there. You've seen him cast out demons. You've seen him heal. Uh, You foolish, simple-minded people. How could you miss this? You have every proof, every opportunity. And still you go after the temporary rather than the internal shame on you. And while that is right and true, it is much more important and much more necessary and much more uncomfortable, I think, to examine our own lives and ask how often do we forsake the eternal for the sake of the temporary. 
If the bank account has the right number of zeros, then my family is secure. If my relationships are reasonably stable, then I am a reasonably stable person. If the government is functioning in a way that appears just and fair, then justice and fairness are keeping my, my life in order. And the problem is, as often as we focus on those temporary things, as soon as one of them is removed and they are all easily removed, our world begins to spin. The economy shifts, the relationship gets strained, justice fails, and we wind up head over heels not knowing which way is up. How critical is it that we understand the one that truly meets our needs and what our real need is? That we are called to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. It's almost as if we've heard that before. And in doing that, all of the rest of these things will be added to us. Three things for us to think about as we go. First of all, we need to remember that the good shepherd cares. Sometimes as we read these narratives, it's easy, at least it's easy for me, to overlook the beauty of the compassion of Jesus. He didn't owe that crowd a thing, but he felt compassion on them. He doesn't owe us anything. And yet he's moved with kindness and compassion, and he treats us that way. Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9 says, The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he's made. If I'm honest, sometimes God in my head winds up being all justice and no mercy. Sometimes he's all righteous, holy anger and no tender compassion. Now certainly we can flip that and go too far the other way. But what we struggle to balance in our flesh, there's no tension, there's no war in the Trinity, in God, in all His perfection. He is both just and merciful. He is perfectly truthful and perfectly gracious. He condemns sin and He saves sinners. And that same God who is all-knowing infinite, above all, omnipotent, perfectly powerful, knows the needs not just of his creation in general, but knows the needs of his children. And he's still gracious and compassionate. And some of you out there are weary. You are tired. You are bearing up under a load that I cannot even begin to comprehend. And maybe today you need to be reminded that the Good Shepherd still cares. He is still gracious and compassionate and He still meets the needs of His people. Second, the Good Shepherd guides. So interesting to me that John tells us that Jesus knew what He was going to do from the beginning, not just because of who He is, but it reminds us that as He asks that question to Philip, where are we supposed to get food for all of these people? He knows what he's doing. He is bringing his disciples intentionally to a place where they are not comfortable with what is happening around them. He's bringing them to the place where their questions far outstrip their answers. And still, he told the disciples to feed the crowds. 
some of us need a reminder that the Good Shepherd will lovingly guide us into situations that are far beyond our ability to deal with. Very often, we hear with all good intentions that God won't give you more than you can handle. That is theologically sloppy, I'll say at best. God will routinely move you into places where you cannot handle it. What's the promise? The promise is that you won't be tempted to sin beyond what you can bear without Him providing a way out. The promise is that as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't need to fear the evil because He's with you. The promise is that although your needs are great and real and painful potentially, He will meet those needs and He will use all of those things to make you more like the Son. So some of us need to stop laying awake at night, chewing on problems, trying to figure out how we're going to meet them in our own strength when they were never designed to be met in our own strength. We need to be reminded that the Good Shepherd will lead us into difficult places, not so that we can see how much we have to offer, but so that we can see how desperately dependent on Him we are to do even the most basic of tasks. Whether that's preach a sermon, raise my children or work hard for the living that God has called me to. I am wholly dependent on Him for all of those things. For some of us, it's time to simply ask, not how am I going to solve this, but how has God called me to be obedient and faithful to what He has given me today? And then to simply rest and trust that He will do exactly what He said He would do. Vinyl. We need to be reminded that the bread of life satisfies. Someone here, someone listening, likely needs to hear that satisfaction is only found in Christ alone because you're searching for it somewhere else. Uh, Maybe you're the student who's hoping to find your identity and your satisfaction in your grades or your sports or your friend circle or your relationship or whatever it is. You need to hear that satisfaction is found in Christ alone. Maybe you're the employee who's thinking that the next contract, the next promotion, the next raise will finally get you to where you need to be for your family planning over the next 10, 20, 30 years. You need to hear that satisfaction is only found in Christ alone. Maybe you're hurting. Maybe for years you've been longing to have your health restored. Maybe for years you've been longing to have the relationship restored. Something that's broken, made whole again. And perhaps you need to be reminded that satisfaction is not in the making whole of physical things or relational things. But you need to be reminded that satisfaction comes in Christ alone. That Jesus alone satisfies the deepest need in all of us. And that is to be restored to the God that we rebelled and rejected. And as we seek Him and His kingdom, as we seek the King and the righteousness that's found only in Him, all those things will be added to us. And all things doesn't mean the all things that we typically like. It means that the basic needs will be met, that God's purposes will be accomplished, and that the one who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And in doing that, we have a living hope that makes this temporary world with all its joy and all its beauty and all its pain and all its frustration pale in comparison because the King is coming. Let's pray. Lord, our perception and our focus is small. 
We confess that we are a people quick to see the need that is right before our eyes. And that might be food for the day. It might be a struggle with our family. It might be a deep heartache that comes from a broken relationship. Lord, you never say that those are not real needs. You did not stand on that hillside and tell the people they were not really hungry. Lord, instead, you moved to meet our greatest need and lovingly remind us that you will meet all of our needs. Lord, make us a people that are confident in your provision, that as the good shepherd and the bread of life, you will lead us where it is right. You will lead us where we ought to be for your name's sake. That to dwell in the house of the Lord is where true joy is found. That in the bread of life we find the only thing that truly satisfies. Lord, remind us that we are wholly dependent on you and then let us rejoice in the fact that you have provided abundantly for us. And still we long for the kingdom that is coming when we will know the fullness of that joy and satisfaction in you. And so we pray, Lord, come quickly. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.